everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens. This is Story and Star Wars, hopefully our second Q&A session will go more smoothly than our first Q&A session. Tonight we are going to address a few outstanding questions about the prequel trilogy and about the Star Wars saga as a whole. And then, of course, I have some really fun listener questions to address. There are a number of you joining me live here tonight, so you can, by all means, get in touch with questions, with comments, with observations, with your insights. You can do that in the YouTube chat as you're all doing right now, or you can tweet at me live using the hashtag StarWonks, and I will see that here in the side of my screen so I can address your questions directly. Before we get into the actual meat of tonight's session, uh, I wanted to take a moment to thank you all, basically, for this seminar series. It has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to discuss Star Wars with all of you. As some of you have discovered over the course of the last few weeks, this has actually been a plan of mine for years now. I've long wanted to have exactly this kind of seminar experience, this kind of engagement over a text that I have loved for decades now. I couldn't have expected, though, the depth or the kindness or the precision or the insight that we've seen in the course of this conversation. So thank you to everyone who has listened, to everyone who has shared a link, to everyone who has emailed me or tweeted it to me about this seminar. It's been an absolute blast. I've loved every minute of it. And we're not done yet. There's going to be a little more to come, so stay tuned to the end of the seminar for that. Before we get to specific listener questions this evening, I want to address some deceptively simple questions about the prequel trilogy and about the saga. If the original trilogy of Star Wars is, as we said here on the seminar series, the story of harmony, of the restoration or the discovery of harmony within and then without, of Luke first arriving at a harmonious balance with the Force and then through that harmonious balance restoring peace to the galaxy with, of course, the aid of his friends, then what is the story of the prequel trilogy? And perhaps more directly, more importantly, to whom does the prequel trilogy belong? It's often been said that the prequel trilogy is about Anakin, and the original trilogy is about Luke, and thus we see the bonds of father and son made evident in the structure of this story as a whole, but I don't buy it. And I don't buy it for a number of reasons. One of the most compelling is, of course, Anakin's all but complete absence from the actual structure of The Phantom Menace. His involvement in the events of The Phantom Menace is peripheral, and what's there isn't in any way load-bearing. It's not in any way significant. The Phantom Menace, and, I would argue, the prequel trilogy, is in fact Obi-Wan's story. This is his journey that we're exploring, that we're discovering together. It's his movement from brash and impetuous young Jedi Knight into a mature and wise Jedi Master. We see in Obi-Wan a path of wisdom and of harmony that is unique, actually, in the span of the entire saga. It is Obi-Wan alone who stands free of the burdens of pride and of complacency that we see in the other Jedi through the prequel trilogy. Obi-Wan is the one who, when it comes down to it, saves the day. He is the one who saves Padme long enough for the children to be born. He is the one who ushers Luke away to Tatooine. He is the one who watches over Luke, we guess, through his childhood. And he is, of course, the one who leads Luke to his destiny, to the Force, and thus specifically restores balance. Obi-Wan is the hero of the prequel trilogy. 
He's there from the beginning. He's there to the end. It's his arc that delineates, that demarcates the arc of this story. And when he hands over the reins of protagonism, I guess, to Luke, when we hit that point of inflection between Sith and A New Hope, what we're seeing isn't just the passing of the generations. It isn't just a father-to-son bond, though I would argue it is a father-to-son bond. If Obi-Wan and Anakin are as brothers, then certainly in their limited time together, Obi-Wan and Luke are like a father and son. Certainly, I think the text leads us to that conclusion, if in practice it feels a little hurried. A little mythic, perhaps, let's say that. It's a little, a little uh, operatic, a little heightened, but it's there nonetheless. Obi-Wan's role, I talked a little in the conclusion to the uh, Revenge of the Sith lecture, about Sith's great triumph being the way in which it actually deepens and strengthens and adds complexity to the original trilogy. It does the thing which, honestly, no one expected it to do, particularly after The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. It makes the original trilogy stronger. And I think one of the ways that it does that, possibly the most effective way that it does that, is through the person of Obi-Wan Kenobi. When you see that man emerge from the, the, the desert sea on Tatooine, when you see him care for Luke, hand over that lightsaber, and of course, ultimately, face Vader on the Death Star, it's impossible not to remember, not to associate directly those moments with all that we've seen and experienced in the prequel trilogy. Now, I've talked at length about why the prequel trilogy should be viewed after the original trilogy, why you should watch them in release order rather than, I guess, numerical order. Chronological order is even a little challenging as a, as a useful descriptor in this instance. So I've talked about why that split should be preserved, because we're looking at the story that's being told to us, not the story as it unfolds in the fictional reality. Actually, I have an interesting question about that, so we'll, we'll address that topic more directly in the time to come. Ultimately, though, I think we see the story of Obi-Wan striving for peace and harmony, though imperfectly. There is a reason that Obi-Wan fails. He doesn't just fail because circumstances are arrayed against him and the odds are nigh impossible. He fails because he doesn't properly see. He doesn't properly understand who Anakin is, who Yoda is, or who Master Windu is. He's blinded to both by the shroud of the dark side of the Force, but also by bonds of loyalty, of love. He doesn't manage to unite the Jedi in the way that they should be united in order to fight back against the threat. He doesn't manage to lead his forces, his side, to victory. Instead, he manages to steal, as I said at the end of the Sith Lecture, these fragile moments of light in the darkness. He manages to preserve the smallest fragment of hope but hope isn't nothing. It's a triumph. It's a small, fragile, desperate, sad triumph. But it's a triumph nonetheless. So for me, at least, the original trilogy is as much... Uh, sorry, the prequel trilogy is as much Obi-Wan's story as the original trilogy is Luke's. Yeah. This is interesting. Lance says in the YouTube chat, is Obi-Wan then the one about whom the prophecy spoke? He brought balance through tutoring both Anakin and Luke. That's a really interesting idea, isn't it? I think that when we when we think about the prophecy, and it's it's 
baffling that we don't get the actual text of the prophecy. We don't get the cryptic prophecy itself. Instead, we get summations of, of this prophecy. And this nebulous idea of balance to the Force, and of course, in a sense, Anakin does bring balance to the Force, he absolutely does, because he manages to leave two Jedi behind and two Sith behind. The Force is literally balanced in that regard. And I think that there's, there's a shadow of that intent in the prophecy, certainly in the movement of Sith specifically. But yeah, in a broader sense, I think you're right. The question, I guess, is by balance, do we mean what we seem to mean? Do we mean balance in the truest sense? Do we mean balance in the sense of harmony, of peaceful coexistence? Are we really talking about that? Or are we talking about this artificial balance, this this two-on-two, two, forever they shall be pitched thus kind of, of I don't know, a conflict balance? It depends, but certainly that's an interesting point of speculation. It's not one that had occurred to me. Thank you very much for that, Lance. That's fascinating. Yeah. Great. Good, good, good. Okay, so before we also get into the questions, one last thing before we get into the questions, and and, and this is hmm, this is something a little challenging for me <laughs> as we discuss uh, these texts as we move through the seminar, because the thing is this. I'm always tempted to be comprehensive. When I address a topic, particularly in a form like this, I want to say what there is to be said about this topic. I want to explore it deeply, thoroughly, comprehensively. I want to be definitive. And that's impossible. That's why, by the way, I tend to run long on these things. But but comprehensive discussion of texts as rich and as complicated as these is going to elude our grasp in this instance. We're not going to be able to touch upon every point that we might want to discuss in the course of these seminar sessions. So what I want to do is talk briefly about a few recurring ideas that I'm going to continue to think about in the weeks and months ahead, that I'm going to continue to mull over and perhaps we'll discuss in upcoming lectures or, or in blog posts or who knows, maybe someday I'll write that Star Wars book that I've been wanting to write for my entire life. I want to kind of raise these as points of discussion, and if you want to delve into these topics, then by all means we can do so. You can head on over to the StoryWonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. The first idea that I've been mulling over in the course of the last week deals with the decline of the Republic and exactly what we're to make of that in the context of the influence of the Sith, the presence of the dark side, and, and uh, the shrouding of the Force from the Jedi Council. I mentioned back in the lecture for The Phantom Menace that there are suggestions within the frame of that film that the Republic is a power on the decline. It doesn't seem to be as powerful and as authoritative as we might expect it to be. That's absolutely encapsulated by Watto's rejection of Republic credits, apparently an appropriate amount of Republic credits for the parts needed for the repairs to the Nabush starship. In that lecture, I speculated that perhaps what we were seeing was a Republic that had already begun to succumb to bureaucracy. And then when we move into Attack of the Clones, what we're really looking at is the conflict between, I guess, justice in its most abstract and true sense, and legalism. That's true too in The Phantom Menace. We see that tension there when we're looking at slavery, when we're looking at the formalization of the invasion of Naboo. We're looking at the triumph of bureaucracy over a sense of broader justice, and that's true when we move into Obi-Wan's story in Attack of the Clones 2. That's a, that's a far more cynical and edgy and gritty kind of story than we're accustomed to in Star Wars. So my question, I guess, 
is this. Without the influence of the Sith, and without the protection of the Jedi, what would have happened to the Republic? Because it seems to me that the Supreme Chancellor's power, that Chancellor Palpatine's plan at a very fundamental level, was going to lead to the rise of the Empire anyway. The trade blockade would still have led to the Separatist faction, would still have led to the Grand Army of the Republic, would still have led to the Clone War, would still have led to the tyranny of authoritarian control. He would still have been, essentially, ceded the Republic, and he would have been able to become the Emperor, even without the influence of, of his Jedi powers, or his Sith powers. And I'm fascinated by that because it suggests that the frame for the prequel trilogy isn't directly connected to what seems to be the overwhelming conflict. That primary conflict between the Jedi and the Sith, between the light side and the dark, the, the battle for balance in the Force, that seems, in the movement of the plot at least, to be an additional detail, peripheral world-building, but not fundamental. And I'm fascinated by that. I'm curious about that. And perhaps I'm looking at this in a in an incorrect way. Perhaps I'm not seeing the breaking points, but, I, but I've looked at this plot and tried to figure out, well, okay, what did the Jedi actually accomplish that could not have been accomplished by non-superpowered means? And what does Darth Sidious accomplish that Chancellor Palpatine doesn't accomplish? And there's very little. If you remove the Force from the equation entirely, things would have proceeded much as they did. So that's one of the points of speculation that I'm continuing to wrestle with. The second is perhaps the swing from self-determination and individual heroic agency in the original trilogy to themes of fate and destiny and obligation and inevitability in the prequel trilogy and the ways in which those themes are actually mirrored by our position in the plot. I've been wrestling with the degree to which the prophecy, the prophecy that we've discussed here, the prophecy to which Lance alluded, the degrees to which that prophecy is in fact the script for A New Hope, is in fact the script for Empire and for Jedi. It is a foreknowledge of the text to come. I, I'm not meaning literally, of course, I don't think that in-universe that is the explanation, but there is a sense in which agency in the original trilogy is unfettered. Characters can take action, can enact lasting change, whereas, of course, by virtue of the prequel trilogy being a prequel trilogy, there is an inevitability that must be addressed. We know what's going to happen to Anakin and to Obi-Wan and to Yoda. We know that Luke and Leia are going to be parted and are going to be raised on, on different planets. We know what is coming. And the... The subsumption of that by this language of destiny and of fate. I find that to be fascinating. I find that to be an interesting and rich vein, just, just ripe for, for speculation and exploitation. Yeah. Bonnie says, in the prequels, is Palpatine using the Force to maneuver politically or just his elite skills? I think it's his elite skills. Certainly, he doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be acting outright. Uh, or, or he doesn't seem to be, let me, let me clarify that, I guess. He doesn't seem to be wielding his, his Sith powers outright. The politics seem to hang together 
perhaps not in a real world way, but they hang it together according to the rules that are laid out within the text fairly well, I think. Though that's absolutely a point of speculation. The idea that he could be manipulating en masse the entire Senate through, you know, uh, I don't know, a more generalized form of the Jedi mind trick, absolutely a possibility, and I'm sure that there are expanded universe, uh, expanded universe stories that address those topics directly. Yeah. Yeah. Good, okay. Um, and the last kind of, out, the last outstanding um, point that I'm wrestling with, that I'm still trying to unpack and, and pin down as fully as I can, is the notion of dualism. And I talked about this too in, in the prequel trilogy lectures, but the idea of opposed and complementary pairs, the idea that there is a dark side and a light side, the idea that there is a Palpatine and a Sidious, the idea that, of course, Anakin has his two sides, but that Anakin and Obi-Wan together form a unified pair, the idea that Amidala is both queen and senator. There are all of these opposed pairs that seems to be a theme that is all but dispensed with by the time we reach the original trilogy, opposed pairs doesn't seem to be as as developed a theme in the original trilogy or as 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 compelling a preoccupation in the original trilogy as it is in the prequel trilogy, of course, but I find that fascinating. So that's another thing that I would want to continue to unpack. And the last thing that I would want to look at more carefully, had I had I my time over again, the last thing that I would want to look at more carefully and will look at more carefully in the future uh, is actually addressed by a note that I received from listener Richard, who wrote to ask me about my thoughts on midichlorians, particularly my references in the lecture for The Phantom Menace about dualism and about Descartes. Um, I want to kind of, first of all, carefully disambiguate those two ideas. I was talking about, I guess, lowercase d dualism and uppercase d dualism, though the uppercase d dualism in that sense doesn't actually have an uppercase d. I'm talking about dualism in the literary sense, uh, a pair that is, yes, opposed or complementary. But I'm also talking about dualism in the sense of the philosophy of mind, the, the, the way in which we understand the root of our own self-awareness, our own agency, the root of our own mind. Dualism is that school of thought that posits that the mind and the brain are separate. That is to say that there is a, a physical machine that is us, but that the thinking part of us isn't a product of that system, but is in fact something else, is in fact something more spiritual or more mystical or more, I don't know, metaphorical. Those two things are connected, but they are not the same. We are composed of a body and a spirit, not just a body and its emergent property. Of course, the, the greatest, I guess, proponent of dualism in the modern sense was René Descartes. His meditations were a means of drilling down through his experience of the world to, in order to find a, a root source of identity that he could uh, that he could then develop into an account, a comprehensive account of mind and body. This is where we get cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. He drilled down into his own awareness, he questioned everything scrupulously, and arrived at the one indivisible truth, the one atomic truth of his own identity, which was, I think therefore I am. There is a being right now in this moment who is thinking this thought. And from there, Descartes was able to build back up, having stripped down all of his sense experience, his knowledge of the world, everything that he thought and knew and understood, he stripped it all down to get to that atomic truth, and then having arrived at that foundational bedrock, 
was able to build back up again, but he wasn't building just on the idea that he thought, therefore, he was. One truth is not enough in Descartes' meditations to construct that scaffold, to get you back up to an account of your experience, of your, your thought process, of your place in the world. So Descartes coupled his thinking, therefore, he ising with knowledge of the presence, the benevolent presence of God. This is a strictly theistic account of dualism. And that's interesting. It may seem to modern philosophers to be something of a cop-out. Generally, we don't try to strip away our experience, to distill our experience, to get down to something absolutely true and indivisible, and then say, oh, but plus God. So, you know, those two things combined allow us to have this perfect insight. I think that a modern philosopher would look for something a little less, uh, something a little less tautologically true, something a little less abstract, perhaps. But what's really interesting when you look at that is the way in which dualism, the way in which identity, the way in which presence and the mind-body problem are resolved in Star Wars. And really, this comes to us through the midichlorians. Yeah, good. <laughs> oh, we're getting some freezing from Elizabeth. I'm terribly sorry, Liz. I hope that, uh, I hope that everything's working out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're getting an imperfect stream here tonight. I do apologize for that, but, uh, hopefully the podcast will, uh, will emerge complete and whole. <laughs> right. Good, 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 good. So, so having broken down dualism in this way, we arrive at the presence of midichlorians because in the original trilogy, the force is, in a sense, the, the external source of mind and identity. Through the force, we are connected. You know, as Yoda says, that, that everything is bound together by the force and luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. And that's, vital. That's absolutely critical to our understanding of the Force in the context of the original trilogy. The introduction of the midichlorians, though, does something very interesting in that it interposes a, a mediating presence between us, our physical selves, our crude matter, and the Force itself, if the Force itself is actually a meaningful thing. The midichlorians become the root of dualism rather than rather than our own selves, our own bodies, our own awarenesses. So we have a connection to them and they have a connection to something else, but we ourselves are not directly connected to that other thing. So we see that that has profound implications for our understanding of where we, as, as thinking creatures, as luminous beings, reside. It would take a more skilled and educated and experienced theologian, I think, to unpick all the threads of this argument, to really get to grips with how these things map. But it does seem as though the introduction of the midichlorians, rather than turning magic into science, a, a criticism that is often leveled at the presence of midichlorians, particularly in the Phantom Manage, you're taking something magical and you're turning it into something scientific by virtue of this seemingly somewhat half-assed explanation. But rather than turning something magical into something scientific, we seem to be turning something magical into something mystical, into something... I hesitate to say spiritual because of the connotations of that, but mystical will, will do. And that's before we start crediting the midichlorians with agency and awareness 
of their own before Qui-Gon even broaches the topic of Anakin's immaculate conception. So something is happening there. There is a reframing of our relationship with the Force that takes place on a very fundamental level between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. I'm not entirely sure the nature of that distinction. I do not think it's as simple as I previously thought it was. And I do not think it's as simple as it's often presented. I don't think it's just the hard swing from magic to science. Because of that, that, that mystical component. I'm fascinated by that. So I guess if, if there are any trained theologians out there, then by all means get in touch and explain to me how this, or, or trained philosophers too, everyone is welcome at this big table of discussion. Get in touch and explain to me what your view is of this, this interposition of the midichlorians between us, the broadest sense of us as thinking sentient beings in the universe, or trees and rocks, as Yoda points out, and the Force. And what do we think Qui-Gon means? Is there specific application of the living force, as Qui-Gon describes it? Is the living force a different interpretation of or value for the force in a broader sense? That's fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating. So this is another point that I'm going to leave you dissatisfied upon, I'm afraid. But yes. <laughs> yes, good. Jessica says, I think that when they mention midichlorians, there is a physical measure of the ability of a force user. And that she wants the force to be mystic, not scientific. Yes, I think certainly... <laughs> I think certainly a mystical force through the medium of midichlorians is truer to our sense of the Star Wars universe and the presence and the agency of the Force, but it does come along with some additional questions. Yeah. Yes, good. Good, good, good. Oh, and Louis, or, or potentially Louis, I guess, says, uh, I agree, Alistair. I mean, how do the midichlorians know the will of the Force? By the way, theologian here, thank you for showing up. I'm, I'm glad to have a more informed perspective than my own in this regard. This is great. Yes, good, good. Uh, the question of the midichlorians, the question of the will of the midichlorians, the will of the force, to have Qui-Gon say the midichlorians are responsible specifically for Anakin's immaculate conception, that is a weird thing to say. That has incredibly profound consequences for our understanding of the force, and yet it's thrown out with no further exploration, you know? It's interesting stuff. All right, with that, now that I'm half an hour into this theoretically hour-long live session let's get to our actual questions these are fun guys by all means jump in if you have answers for these questions then shout out in the youtube chat shout out on twitter uh if you have questions of your own absolutely let me know and uh this is going to be fun we'll, we'll race through some of these our first question comes from nix who uh hosts the excellent stargate rewatch podcast there's no place like Terra. i am a dedicated listener to that podcast you can find it on itunes i can't recommend it highly enough nix asks what is your most iconic star wars moment mine used to be luke getting his dad's lightsaber now it's i know since the boyfriend quotes it every day it's a pretty good guy you've got there nix that's a pretty good guy for me the most iconic Star Wars moment has actually moved. It's actually transitioned during the course of the seminar. For me, it was always the, the moment that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up back when I had hairs on the back of my neck. Uh, the moment that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up was always Luke turning off his targeting computer. It was always that moment of faith, that moment of trust, of harmony, of course. That was not just the moment that 
affected me the most profoundly, but the quintessential Star Wars moment in the entire original trilogy. Now, though, my opinions actually moved. The, the scene, the single moment that means the most to me and that represents Star Wars at its absolute most powerful is Obi-Wan surrendering at the end of his duel with Vader on the Death Star in A New Hope. That moment of serenity when he holds his lightsaber aloft and just waits for the blow to strike. He knows exactly what's coming and he has made peace with it. Right now, in this moment where this monster, this creature who used to be his Padawan learner, this creature who used to be his brother, is standing before him, is unleashing this fury, this rage upon him, and he is so wise now, so empowered in his knowledge of the Force, that he can simply accept it, that he understands that this is what has to happen. That's an incredibly powerful moment, and absolutely foreshadows everything that flows from that. It speaks directly to the central theme of harmony, of peace, of, of, of wisdom, I guess. You know, wisdom is also an undervalued virtue in the world today. The idea that we can simply know something to be true and not fight to change it. That's a powerful idea, and, uh, it's one that I struggle with myself, which is perhaps I'm a fixer by nature is the problem. So that idea that, that one might arrive at peace simply through wisdom and knowledge uh, is an intriguing one to me. So that possibly accounts for my personal connection with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth asks, how many midichlorians dance on the head of a pin? Yes, these. These are the questions we must wrestle with. <laughs> good, good, good. All right. Um, Moving on, Sam asks, you've mentioned the Lord of the Rings a couple of times during the seminar. It's a rare day when I don't mention the Lord of the Rings at least once or twice. Uh, are there, Sam asks, similarities between the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars? And yes, there are too few, one might argue. Um, and I should say that what similarities there are between the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars are, I believe, generally speaking, a product of a shared cultural heritage more than direct inspiration on the part of George Lucas. He, Lucas has acknowledged The Lord of the Rings as an inspiration, but it seems to me that the elements that The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars have in common are also grounded in much older Western narrative conventions, you know? So we have the connection, of course, between Obi-Wan and Gandalf, for example. But if you're going to acknowledge that connection, then you kind of have to go back a thousand years uh, into our shared storytelling history and look at the, the original archetypes that filled that role. You're looking at your Merlin archetype, essentially. So while there are superficial connections between, you know, the fantasy of the Lord of the Rings and the fantasy of Star Wars. I think in their specific movement, there are very few actual specific echoes. Too few, arguably. When I was thinking about this question, it actually struck me that, that the Lord of the Rings gives us a valuable perspective on one of the elements of the prequel trilogy that didn't quite connect for me. Back in the discussion of Attack of the Clones, I talked at length about Anakin as the chivalric hero, Anakin as the knight errant, Anakin as the tragic figure who was brought low, not by vice, not by weakness, but by an excess of virtue. Here, he has the virtuous, generally, desire to protect the people he cares about. He takes that virtuous desire to extremes. They, uh, that, that desire is unbridled, it is irrational in the truest sense. 
And it leads to his downfall. It leads to all the terrible things that, that flow from that desire. That's a fascinating piece of character work, but it's not quite evident on screen. You have to go looking for it in order to understand that that's what we're dealing with. And I would contrast that with to dip into the Lord of the Rings. For those of you who don't know the Lord of the Rings, the next 30 seconds or so are going to be completely impassable, so I apologize for that. But uh, <laughs> the comparison that I would draw is, of course, with the fall of Boromir on the banks of the Anduin. Boromir is manipulated into believing that his heroic excess of virtue is a noble thing in and of itself. Anakin is aware when he falls that he is falling. Boromir isn't until it's too late. And that is the seductive power of the ring. And what we don't see in Star Wars is the seductive power of the dark side. Darth Sidious is far too free with his references to, you know, evil, with his, his stories about Darth Plagueis the Wise. We don't see from Anakin the the irrational, the ungrounded, the dangerous belief that he is fundamentally doing the right thing. He's conflicted throughout, particularly by the time we get to Sith. And I think that a, a, a stronger approach to that can be seen in the fall of Boromir. One of, one of the most heartbreaking, one of the most devastating, one of the most profound passages in The Lord of the Rings. The Fall of Boromir is, is tough reading. And the more you know about The Lord of the Rings, the more you've studied Tolkien's work, the more you've looked into the Silmarillion and you've looked into these cycles of, of fate and failure that repeat themselves again and again, the more you know about that stuff, the worse Boromir's fall gets, the more tragic it becomes. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And of course, Anakin's fall is heartbreaking too, albeit in a somewhat different way. It would be interesting to see Anakin continue to believe that he's doing the right thing, even when he has crossed that moral Rubicon. Yeah. Good. Bonnie says, Anakin equals Lancelot. Yes. Yes. Um, it, <laughs> not specifically, but in the sense of the chivalric hero, certainly Lancelot is... Mm, okay. Arthur, Galahad, you know, the, the actual great knights are the perfected form of the chivalric hero. But when we think about the chivalric hero who falls to, to villainy, when we think of, of the chivalric hero who falters, who fails to live up to his best examples, we think of Lancelot. Lancelot who faltered not because he was villainous, not because he was bad, but because he was too good, because he was afflicted with, with an uncontainable perfection. It's, uh, this isn't the time, I guess, to, to wander off into the bushes uh, and discuss this, but yes. <laughs> and a couple of you are asking when I'm going to do a Lord of the Rings podcast seminar. It is coming, I promise you. There's actually a, uh, there's a stretch goal over on our Patreon page, a milestone over on our Patreon page, because when I do the Lord of the Rings, it is going to be a year-long epic endeavor. We're going to do The Hobbit. We're going to do all three books of The Lord of the Rings. We're going to do the Peter Jackson adaptations, even though The Hobbit adaptations are not great. We're going to look at that. It's going to be a huge endeavor. It's basically going to be a seminar like this that's going to run for a bat. I'm, I'm looking about nine or ten months, but given my predisposition to, to verbosity, probably longer than that. Yeah. 
<laughs> it will come. I promise. One of these, one of these fine days. Right now, I, I tweeted this out the other day, but right now the requests that I'm getting for future seminars are about 75% The Lord of the Rings, about 20% uh, A Game of Thrones, The Song of Fire and Ice series, and about 5% Other, about 5% Miscellaneous Other. So uh, yes, The Lord of the Rings will come. I promise. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's push on from there. So in principle, though, I should note that in, in, in the broadest movement, I do think that Tolkien would have approved of parts of the original trilogy. I think specifically that Tolkien would have approved of the implicit idea that heroism is dangerous, that great deeds, that great individuals come with a price tag attached, that there is a cost associated with that kind of heroism and that the quiet virtues of peace and harmony too often go overlooked, you know? Yeah. I don't think Tolkien would have been impressed with Han Solo, I think is what I'm saying. <laughs> all right, let's get to this. Uh, oh, Mark has a great question, and I absolutely encourage you all to shout out here on Twitter in the YouTube chat too with your responses to this. Mark wrote with a very short email saying, enough hedging. We're not letting you out of here unless you rank all six movies in terms of personal preference. So all six movies in terms of personal preference. A New Hope is first. A New Hope is the most perfect representation of what Star Wars is as well, I would argue, as being the most complete single unit of narrative within the saga. So A New Hope has to be first. Then it's followed by Empire. I don't think that's a terribly controversial opinion. After Empire, though, after Empire, I would go to Sith. I think that what Sith manages to accomplish, particularly in its back half, is absolutely mesmerizing. I think that is... It is such a, a grand and ambitious endeavor. It is so unrestrained. It is so pure in its aspiration and in its execution. Uh, I think I think Sith earns its place there. And then I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm not going to lie. I'm conflicted. Those three are pretty fixed. On a good day, I will pick Jedi over the Phantom Menace. But there are more than a few days when I will pick The Phantom Menace over Jedi. And if I had to pick right now in terms of which I would rather watch, I would probably pick The Phantom Menace over Jedi. I think that The Phantom Menace, while obviously calamitous in its execution, <laughs> contains, contains enough good ideas, enough interesting material. And of course, I'm currently preoccupied by midichlorians, by what this means for our understanding of the Force. So there's an academic interest there too, but, but probably the Phantom Menace, then Jedi, then clones. Clones is always going to be at the bottom of that list. It really doesn't matter. Um, it really doesn't matter how recently I've watched it. It really doesn't matter uh, what good you managed to find in it. And as I said in the lecture, I do believe there's a great deal of good inside Attack of the Clones. It's never going to rise higher than that final point. All right, guys, what, what do you say? <laughs> Everybody loves lists. It's true. There is a desire for ranking uh, among the nerd community. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, think I've, I think I've driven some people off with this. I think we've lost Lance after this. It's true, though. Yeah, I think my, I think my, my list goes A New Hope, uh, Empire, Sith, probably The Phantom Menace, probably then Jedi, and then definitely Clones. Yeah. 
Oh, and Bonnie says her daughter just left her episode of Adventure Time because she heard my voice in the other room. Hello to Bonnie's daughter. I can't really, in good conscience, permit the leaving behind of Adventure Time, but there it is. Lance is stunned and appalled that I would place Phantom Menace above Jedi, and I can understand why. And as I said, you know, there's a, a good two-thirds of the time Jedi is going to to definitely be superior to the Phantom Menace, and I don't argue that in its execution, it's it's a much more successful film, and certainly I think in its moment-to-moment engagement, a much more enjoyable film. Um, it's really just academic interest that would that would swing me toward the Phantom Menace right now. Yeah, Bonnie says hope Jedi over Empire. That's a rare move. Then the Phantom Menace over Attack uh, over Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, yeah, good. Alright, that is a debate for the ages. That debate will rage on and ever on. Let's get to our next question. Julianne writes, saying, Can the Star Wars saga be considered a single text in terms of literary analysis? You referred to ring theory early in the seminar, and I'd love to hear more about it. I think that there are two parts to this question. Um, And I guess I'll address the second part first, because... That is my way. Uh, Julianne is referring to uh, Mike Climo's ring theory. This this really interesting piece of of interpretive analysis, which attributes to the Star Wars saga a chiastic structure, this this, uh, inverted parallelism, this this, uh, folded symmetry in which A New Hope is mirrored by uh, Revenge of the Sith, Uh, Empire is mirrored by clones, and uh, and Jedi is mirrored by the Phantom Menace. I mentioned the Ring Theory right back at the beginning of of the seminar series, possibly in the introductory um, lecture. It is a great piece of cinematographic analysis. Uh, Mike draws uh, Mike draws out um, draws out some striking echoes and inversions and symmetries throughout the series, and it's it's, it's certainly compelling. But in terms of the story of Star Wars, I don't think it works. I don't think it hangs together. Too many of the connections between the movies are are oppositions when you would expect similarities, are inversions when you would expect echoes. Too often you find the references being made, but the reference isn't specific in its application. It's a gesture toward something rather than an actual exploration of that thing. As we've discussed, I think that that there are hmm. <laughs> there are themes and conflicts and preoccupations in each of these films that, in some instances, reflect, mirror, complement other themes and conflicts that we see in other films or in other parts of the same film. And then you arrive at something like Attack of the Clowns that has nothing to do with any of the other Star Wars movies at all. From a narrative perspective, the kind of storytelling that you're seeing in Attack of the Clowns is just completely different from any other um, from any other Star Wars movie. And arguably you can say the same too about Jedi. I think the kind of storytelling that you're getting in Jedi is very different. We talked about the the success in The Phantom Menace of the hero's journey, a structure that isn't replicated in its fullest measure anywhere else in the saga. So 
I, I want to be very careful about this because I genuinely think that that Mike's work uh, in the Ring Theory, the, the link to the Ring Theory, by the way, will be in the show notes accompanying the podcast. I genuinely think that Mike's work is is startlingly insightful and and original. It's comprehensive. It's beautifully written. It's it's absolutely applicable to the Star Wars series as films, as pieces of visual entertainment. I think the Ring Theory holds up really rather well when you look at the shot composition, where you look at elements of design, where you look at, at choices in, in color and, and palette use. When you look at special effects, it, it absolutely holds up in in its largest part, I would say. Not comprehensively, not conclusively, but there's a lot there to enjoy. It doesn't, though, speak meaningfully, from my interpretation, to the story of Star Wars itself. The story of Star Wars itself is just much more chaotic, and the truth is, when you get right down to it, no matter what George Lucas says, Star Wars isn't poetry. It doesn't work as a unified story, start to finish. Particularly, doubly so, triply so, when you present it in chronological order from Menace to Jedi. There are, contained within that, innumerable examples of, of that structure, that narrative form, breaking down partway through the saga so many examples that it's impossible to look meaningfully at Star Wars as a single unified text. Instead, you have to look at it at a series of of connected texts, some more connected than others, you know? I think we, we can kind of break this down um, by looking specifically at two examples. We can look specifically at the example of Jar Jar Binks, and we can look specifically at the example of Boba Fett. Um, if there was another character who is sidelined as thoroughly and as efficiently as Jar Jar Binks, then I cannot think of them. I do not believe for a moment that Lucas wrote The Phantom Menace with the intent that Jar Jar would disappear from the narrative entirely, uh, basically disappear from the narrative entirely, and when he appears in the narrative, to be specifically and purposefully an object of mockery and ridicule. That is absolutely a reaction to the audience response to The Phantom Menace, and I will never be convinced otherwise. <laughs> there is nothing in The Phantom Menace that cues us to see Jar Jar's arc taking him in the direction that he finally goes. He is relegated to the sidelines, I'm certain, because of the response. And that is a completely fine and mature and responsible thing for Lucas to do as an author at that point. The other point of comparison would be Boba Fett. When you look at the prequel trilogy, if you're watching these movies in chronological order, uh, <laughs> again, if you're watching these movies in numerical order, if you're looking at The Phantom Menace first and then Attack of the Clones and so on and so forth, the introduction of Django Fat really doesn't work at all. Our compassion for, I guess, our, our interest in, our concern for this bounty hunter who we don't know and we don't recognize is absolutely assumed by Attack of the Clones. Look at the way that he's introduced in that movie. It, it is a, oh, it's this guy shot. It's not a, hey, this is a new character shot. So we're introduced to this character we don't know about. We're introduced to his son. The, the, the weight of the world building around Django Fett, if our first introduction to this character and this concept takes place in Attack of the Clones, is astounding. The amount of effort that is poured into developing and introducing his character, assuming that the, the canvas is clean beforehand, 
is, is really surprising. You know, we, we get all of this extra stuff. Why is he the template for the clone army? Why is he given a special son who is named Boba? So on, so forth. We then get to the arena battle on Geonosis, and we get that absolutely iconic, absolutely beautiful final shot of Boba kneeling with his father's helmet right there, with that Mandalorian armor that he himself will wear. That is so powerful, so striking, so amazing. Then look ahead. Look ahead to the Boba Fett that we get in Empire, if we're watching these movies numerically. Look at that Boba Fett. Look at the Boba Fett that we get dying in the Sarlacc pit in Jedi. I cannot fathom a storyteller who would lead us from the boy kneeling in the arena with his father's helmet to Boba Fett being trivially dispatched and dropping into the Sarlacc pit. That story didn't exist. That story was not the story that Lucas was telling when we arrived at Empire in the first place. And those are two I mean, nitpicky examples, absolutely, but those are two of, of many, many examples that prove that this story is much more fragmented, regardless of what George Lucas will claim about original treatments and original ideas and, you know, all the many, many accounts, the, the ongoing and evolving mythology that we get about the, the creation of, of Star Wars. But this is the most important thing. Nothing that I've just said is an indictment of Star Wars. None of that is bad. It's not realistic to believe that entire works of art spring forth from the creative void, full and perfect and inviolate. None of these works, no act of creation is that finished and polished and sacred and don't you dare touch it. Revision happens all the time and it should happen all the time original ideas are replaced by better ideas all the time that is a necessary part of creativity of storytelling assuming that there's some kind of some kind of sacred textual canonicity that springs from the original act of creation and certainly not from any subsequent act of creation is one of the most confounding elements of our modern popular culture uh, another, you know, tangential example. Look at J.K. Rowling. People look to J.K. Rowling's mythic account of her of her experience of writing the Harry Potter series, and there is a marked difference between what is deemed canonical. This was the way it was always going to be. This was part of her original idea, and those parts of the Harry Potter fiction, those parts of the universe, those parts of the characters, those parts of the world building that are regarded by the fans as being late additions, late arrivals, revisions, somehow non-canonical, or, or at least, I guess, less canonical. Look at the Dumbledore revelation. Oh my god, you guys, it turns out Dumbledore is gay. That counts for something because that is what J.K. Rowling said, and it counts all the more because that was always a part of her conception of that character. That has nothing to do with the text. It has nothing to do with the book that you're holding in your hand. It has certainly nothing at all to do with your experience of that book. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm more impressed by Star Wars as a growing, breathing, evolving, living document. A story that actually was written over the course of 30 years, is still being written over the course of 50 years. This story has grown and changed and ideas have worked 
and ideas have not worked and characters have taken off and stuck around and characters have been very quietly sidelined, it is a, a, an act of enormous, of, of mesmerizing creativity to, to produce this story over these films, this story over this expanded universe is, it's, it's impressive. It's, it's all the more impressive to me because it's a work continually in progress or, or, you know, <laughs> continually in progress until it's finally codified into its, its final forms. And this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm really not that interested in looking at the original versions of these movies. I mean, I am from an academic perspective. I'm interested in looking at the various revisions that have occurred within the frame of the text itself and what those revisions specifically teach us about the story that we're, we're taking in here. But I don't see the original versions as being somehow more authentic or more canonical than the later versions. Indeed, the later versions, you would argue, have a greater pitch for canonicity because those are the conscious choices that, that Lucas made when he wasn't constrained by budgets and time and the, the, the possibility of special effects. Yeah. So that's where I am on that. Can Star Wars be regarded as a single text in terms of literary analysis? No, no, it can't. Um, you can barely look at each of the two trilogies as single texts. And even then, as we saw with Jedi, as we saw with Attack of the Clones, you run into real trouble um, <laughs> when you try and, and view these as cohesive works. Even some of the individual films don't hang together as, as cohesive works. Even Sith, as I mentioned in the, uh, in the last lecture, the first half of Sith is, 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 is rambling, is ill-disciplined. It is a, it is a weak piece of narrative structure. It is absolutely redeemed by the back half of that story, but that doesn't entirely excuse it, its lack of narrative focus in the first movement. Yeah. And all of this stuff, I think, generally is, is applicable to, to any story you can think of. I don't think that Star Wars is a special case in this regard. I don't think that the Lord of the Rings is more powerful because it all sprang ex nihilo from, from, from Tolkien's imagination. It's not. I mean, the Lord of the Rings perhaps is a special example because we have so many, you know, different iterations of the stories. He accounted beautifully for his own revision process. So it's slightly different, but all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Lance says, but the original was the version that most of us saw, and it's different from book versus movie because we now can't go back and watch that original version. Yes, I would, I would separate that out as a distinct issue, and I think that you are absolutely right. When I talk about our approach to the text, that has, that is by no means meant to exert influence upon your emotional response to the text. Your emotional response to the text actually is inviolate, and there actually is what you would argue is, I guess, some kind of first mover advantage there. Yes you should have the right to see whatever version of Star Wars you want to see. And the way in which the special editions have have superseded the original editions, the way in which they have been supplanted by the, the, the special editions, by each subsequent tier of special editions, I do find that troubling. I do find that enormously problematic. And I find it... I find it uncomfortably kind of patriarchal. I find it uncomfortably uh, uncomfortably authoritarian. Um, the idea that your genuine and profound love of a text is so, so unimportant, so relatively unimportant, so relatively insubstantial that it should be transferable to this thing that's basically the same as the old thing, right? I, I'm not compelled by that argument. And, and, uh, certainly, yeah, while I don't share 
directly a, a distaste for the the special edition revisions while I don't like most of the special edition revisions actually I would generally prefer um, I would generally prefer the original editions but while I don't dislike many of the special edition changes I, I absolutely wouldn't condemn you for feeling aggrieved that you only have the special edition versions available you know I think that that's an entirely uh, an entirely valid perspective you know good. Yeah, Bonnie says, tried watching a New Hope Blu-ray the other night and was all, what the actual, <laughs> yes, <laughs> hate the special edition changes. Yes. Han shot first, says Lance. Full stop. Yes. I mean, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm interested enough in what Lucas is trying to say by making that change that I'm not completely appalled by it. But yes, yes. Th there is a marked difference between between revising a text in public and saying this is a new version, this is a new take on this thing, and saying, no, this is just the version that it was always supposed to be. That is an intrusion into your personal experience and your personal relationship with, with the text, with a text. This, again, isn't Star Wars specific. This is true of any, of any text. Yeah. All right. All right, let's... Uh, <laughs> a lot of support, a lot of support for Lance here. Oh my god, actually, yes. And Lance has also called out the one absolutely unforgivable addition to the uh, to the special edition of A New Hope, which is, of course, Jabba in the hangar. Yeah, wow. All right, let's keep going. Because I have one more question uh, here on my list, and if you guys have questions, then by all means, shout out. And this is... This is a problematic one. This is a difficult one, because if you had asked me this question at the beginning of the seminar series, I would have had a very different answer. Carlos asked, is Anakin slash Vader redeemed at the end of The Return of the Jedi? Does saving his son atone for what he did in the past, or is it killing the Emperor, I guess? Is, is it killing the Emperor that, that redeems him? Yeah, good. Uh, so I'm seeing some discussion here uh, in, in, in the YouTube chat, yes. Uh, Bonnie says, I feel like once it's released into the world, it's no longer yours. I don't love director's cuts either. Again, sometimes director's cuts can be fascinating. They can certainly be informative. Sometimes they can absolutely be better than the original, but they shouldn't supplant. But I think even just naming them the director's cut, what you're getting is a different version. You're not getting... No one is coming to your house and taking away your old version and saying, no, that version was wrong and your response to it was invalid. Here is the new version and your response will be pure and better. And look, I fixed that for you. Okay, we really must push on. So, so this question of, of redemption, this question of, of Anakin's redemption at the end of Jedi, this is, I think, one of those questions that, that forces us, that compels us to be very clear and precise in our differentiation between our personal, moral, ethical response to the text, and our critical analysis of the text. We must be able to look at where the text is leading us, what the text wants us to believe and understand to be true. What is the text's intent? And when I look at the end of Jedi, I think, I genuinely think the answer is no. I genuinely think that Anakin is not redeemed. And redeemed, of course, has a very specific and loaded meaning in this instance. Do I think that that Anakin, that Vader, I guess, is good 
because of the closing moments of Jedi? No, I don't. And I don't think that saving his son or killing the Emperor can can counterbalance his murder of the, the younglings in the Jedi Temple, <laughs> as well as his many, many, many other crimes. I think that I think that the story, whether it's the appearance of the middle-aged Vader at the end of Jedi, or it's the appearance of young Anakin, it's it's uh, Hayden Christensen, uh, Anakin, the young, I guess the middle-aged Anakin, I should have said. It's very difficult to keep this duality separate. Um, whatever you know, version of the, the movie you're watching, I think that the appearance there at the party on Endor it really does suggest that that Vader is dead, and what was Anakin, what was good in him, what was true in him, perhaps, has now found peace. And I think that for me, that's what I get from those closing moments in Jedi. What I see is not redemption, what I see is the, the achievement of, the, the granting of, a moment of peace. I don't think that that Anakin has been... I don't think that Anakin dies a tragic figure. I don't necessarily think that we are supposed to be simply, trivially saddened by Anakin's death. Oh man, that guy, he was a good guy and now he's dead. That is a sad thing. Our response is clearly intended to be much more complicated than that, and I think our responses are generally much more complicated than that. And then we have to deal with the symbolism of the burning of the armor, this conflagration that consumes what was dark about Anakin, ultimately, what was dark about Vader. And then the liberation of what was not, the freedom of, of well, this is where our, our understanding of the Force, our understanding of theology, of mysticism in the Star Wars universe, is insufficient. This is where we cannot say with absolute certainty that this is Anakin's spirit, that this is what died in him when he fell to the dark side, or that this is a part of him that, that did regret his actions, you know? We can speculate, and probably should speculate, I would argue, but I don't think that we can offer a definitive view of that. And ultimately, I guess what I'm saying, the reason that my view on this question, if you had asked me at the beginning of the seminar, is Anakin redeemed at the end of Jedi, I would have said absolutely yes, of course he is. That's why he hangs out at the party with Obi-Wan and Yoda, because he's great now and all is well. I don't think it's anything like that simple. And I don't think that, again, you know, our ever-evolving understanding of the complexity of good and evil in the, in the Star Wars universe applies here, too. I think that, that redemption as a concept is much harder than that. That forgiveness as a concept is much harder than that. And certainly, peace and harmony as concepts are much harder than that. Ultimately, what I would say, what the text leads us, what the text prompts us to believe is that Anakin does achieve a moment of peace, but what is more important, I would argue, is that it is Luke who gives him that moment of peace, who, having achieved harmony internally, can manifest that harmony externally. That having come to peace with the Force, and with himself, with his own nature, can now share that. That that is the gift. That if this were a clean hero's journey structure, that that is the boon that Luke has earned in the supernatural realm and has brought back with him into the mundane realm. 
He can bestow, as heroes can bestow great gifts, Luke can bestow a peace and a harmony to those around him. And ultimately, of course, I would argue that's what he does with Han and with Leia, too. I think that that is his influence in the world. Oh, I was going to I was going to be led off the path into discussion of The Force Awakens, but I don't really want to talk about The Force Awakens. I certainly don't want to talk about any of the the fan speculations surrounding The Force Awakens, mostly because I'm trying to remain fairly uh fairly immune to it, fairly agnostic to the marketing and promotion and certainly the 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 fan response to that movie. Um I don't really want to to prejudge it before I see it. Uh I, I guess I will say this. If it turns out <laughs> as has been predicted by many, many people all over the internet, and I don't believe this for a moment, but if it turns out that Luke succumbs to the dark side, or has more likely already succumbed to the dark side, that betrays a fundamental misreading of the events of Jedi, of the events of the original trilogy in general, um, if that has happened. And I don't think for a moment that it has, but if that has happened, then there's going to need to be a lot of world-building and explanation to account for that. I think I'll say no more than that for right now. Good, good, good. All right. Let's see what we have. Liz says it would help if we actually ever heard the freaking prophecy. Yes, it sure, it sure would. Who brings balance to the force? This is, this is a great question. Who brings balance to the, uh, well, okay. Let us not, let us not beg the question here. Is balance brought to the force? I mean, as I said earlier, numerically, <laughs> um, in terms of the in terms of the rude arithmetic, um, yes, balance is brought to the force, and the force is then unbalanced again. Um, the argument would be, I suppose, this: if the numerical balance between the Sith and the Jedi is vital to peace and harmony in the galaxy. Which is one possible interpretation of the presence of the prophecy in the prequel trilogy, that Anakin manages to strip out all of the Jedi Council, and he leaves behind two Sith, two Jedi, that's it, we're all square, we're all even. If that is the prophesied balance, and if we are to understand that that is a good thing, and these are, of course, very large ifs, but if that is the case, then of course we end Jedi in a place of imbalance, because both the Emperor and Vader have fallen. And whether Anakin has been returned to the light side in some spiritual sense or not, there is now one Jedi in the universe, in the galaxy, as far as we're aware. So that would imply a specific imbalance. I tend to see the balance of the Force. I tend to see that as referring to harmony and peaceful coexistence with the Force. I don't think that <laughs> this could be a whole lecture unto itself, I guess. The way that we are led to see the dark side of the Force, the way that we are led to see the actions of the Sith in particular, does not suggest to me that balance in the Force is an equal part light side and dark side. I think the dark side is just an imbalance in and of itself. I think the Force, this positive, binding, connective, harmonious presence is the light side. And anything that stands in opposition to that is inherently imbalanced. However, in the prequel trilogy, as I've discussed before, we see that imbalance made manifest because 
the Jedi Council is in some way cut off from the Force. They're pride stands in their way. Certainly the shroud of the dark side stands in their way. Their complacency stands in their way. Their desire to believe themselves incorruptible. Their desire to refuse to engage with the idea that the Sith have returned after being exterminated a thousand years ago, you know? I think that the light side of the Force is unbalanced. I think that it is it is in a state of disharmony. Um, at the beginning of the prequel trilogy, and arguably, Luke does manage to restore that. He does manage to find his way back. So I guess my, my response would be, if you're looking numerically, I mean, Anakin literally does it. He literally balances the Force. But I think in a broader, more complete sense. And, and, and certainly, you know, we can still credit Anakin with taking the action that he was prophesied to take, as much as we can credit Obi-Wan with taking the action he was prophesied to take, in, in that their actions led to Luke and led to, dare I say, the reawakening of the Force. More about that in about a month from now. Yeah. All right. Let me see what other questions we have here. Yes, good, good, good. Lance asks, but would Leia have taken Luke's role? Would she have turned out the same as he did? Hmm. Interesting. Um, certainly the text doesn't lead us to believe that that is the case. Um, Yoda's cryptic references and then, and then Obi-Wan's cryptic references to Leia seem within the bounds of the text to be indications that that the, that the Force is awakening, that there are other people out there who are capable in potentia of, of manifesting the same kinds of skills, of, of leading the same kind of life, of, of being the same kind of hero. I've got to say, the, the original trilogy's approach to Leia is wildly inconsistent, and I'm not at all sure that there's enough in that text if we limit ourselves just to the movies and, and we don't dip into the now, I guess, counter-canonical expanded universe. I don't think there's enough there to, to say with authority one way or the other about Leia, but certainly it's a worthwhile point of speculation, and certainly if, if, if you feel compelled to make that argument, um, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the, the textual evidence to oppose it, um, and, and I would probably want to go along with you on that, yeah, yeah. All right, let's wrap this up, guys. We're running a little later than I planned. It has been a ton of fun talking Star Wars with you. I should say that uh, this is not the end. I will, as I promised last week, return to you around the end of December to talk a little about The Force Awakens. Um, I'm basically going to go and watch that movie four times, I think, uh, sometime between Christmas and New Year. I'll, I'll watch it a number of times. I'll sit in the theater with a, a little notepad and take my notes, and I'll put together um, a lecture on that movie and hopefully have interesting things to say about it. And then... If there's time and we can schedule it, and if there's interest too, I dare say, then uh, maybe we'll schedule another live Q&A where we can, we can hash out some of the details of that movie. That's going to be a lot of fun. In January, we begin a whole new seminar series uh, looking at Dragonfly in Amber, the second of Diana Gabaldon's Outlander novels. That is going to be an interesting an interesting read. It is a, a time travel romance in which a 20th century heroine is displaced back to 18th century Scotland. It is uh, riotous. It is <laughs> absolutely compelling. It is abundantly charming. It is by no means a perfect book, um, as Outlander before it was by no means a perfect book. Uh, but it's 
always a fascinating conversation. And it is, and I'm equivocating perhaps a little too much. It is really good. Um, and I have some, some really interesting conversations to look forward to. So uh, I hope that you'll be able to join us for that. And if not that, then you should absolutely stay tuned to storywonk.com sometime in March or... Yeah, no, I guess probably probably the beginning of March. I will post a short list of books, of movies, of TV shows, of, of texts for the next seminar series. We will at some point in 2016 be looking at the second Harry Potter novel. We will at some point in 2016 also probably be looking at fairy tales. I'm going to put together a, I don't know, maybe a six-week short seminar uh, looking at fairy tales and the roots of of western mythology looking at this kind of this this very specific very organic um very fundamental uh, kind of kind of mythology that's uh, going to be a fascinating conversation so stay tuned for that too but if you would like me to look at your favorite book or your favorite movie i'm also I'm also potentially interested in doing some one-shot seminars looking at individual movies. So if there's a single movie that you really like, that you would like deconstructed in this way, then let me know. You can email me directly, alistair at storywonk.com. That is A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R. By all means, get in touch and let me know about your favorite books, as I said earlier. The Lord of the Rings, definitely on the list. Game of Thrones, definitely on the list. I get... I get frequent and passionate uh, arguments for, oh my goodness, Neil Gaiman. Um, <laughs> there are so many, there are so many that, that I can't even think now, but, but there will be, I don't know, a half dozen books on the shortlist for you guys to vote on. And then the winner will be the topic of the next seminar series. And that's going to be a ton of fun. Um, oh, old man's war. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah, by all means, get in touch. There's there's a ton of stuff. Oh, Crash Test Bonnie says Jessica Jones. Yeah, um, we... I can't say anything about that on a podcast. Um, it is possible that we'll have a project looking at the Marvel Cinematic Universe at some point in the future. Though I am interested, too, in unpacking... Uh, Unpacking superhero culture, looking at uh, one of the one of the options on the last shortlist was a look at Spider-Man, looking at his origins in the comics, looking at the reboot in the Ultimate Universe, looking at the movie adaptations of that character, looking at what's interesting about that is, of course, the 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 repeated adaptations of that core idea. That's fascinating, and looking at how that character uh, how that character has survived and adapted and 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 compel generations now of, of readers. It's it's fascinating stuff. There'll be a lot of stuff to, to enjoy there. It's good. A lot of support for fairy tales. Fairy tales is going to be a ton of fun, so definitely, definitely stick around for that. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. It has been an absolute blast talking Star Wars with all of you. And I know that I still have my goodness, an infeasible amount of email in my inbox waiting for responses. So I have read everything that has come in. If I haven't got back to you yet, I can only apologize for that. I will uh, just as soon as I get a chance. But it's been just wonderful talking about this stuff with you. And uh, I'm looking forward, of course, to The Force Awakens. I'm looking forward, of course, to, uh, to having that discussion with you guys too. Not a moment too soon. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I will talk to you all very soon. Until then, may The Force be with you.